Hi, I'm your host, Rowan Tonkin, and welcome to Being Planful, the show for FP&A leaders and planning experts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Being Planful podcast. Today, I'm joined by Terrell Turner. Terrell uh, runs his own organization, Talking the Language of Money. Uh, it runs his own podcast as well. And Terrell, I'd love you to, uh, to introduce yourself, talk about some of your experience in business and now what you're doing uh, today for small business leaders. Absolutely. Yeah. So my background is uh, accounting and finance. Um, I you know, studied business in undergrad, got a graduate degree in accounting, which should tell people a lot about me is that yeah, I, I can be a bit nerdy at times. I mean, if you got a master's degree in accounting, that's just part of the reality. <laughs> so uh, but I, I just continued down that path, worked in public accounting, worked with big companies, Fortune 500 companies like Navistar and General Electric and you know, worked in the U.S. as well as down in Brazil and did several different FP&A roles. And I did some accounting roles, but FP&A was kind of like the world that I really enjoyed. Continued down that path. And then I became the director of FP&A for a hyper growth uh, tech company. They were, you know, between during my time there, they were between 30 to about 60 million in revenue. Um, mm -hmm. And they just had the privilege of helping put together an FP&A team, kind of building out what that team should look like and really having to work a lot with the non-finance team to break things down so they kind of understood what the numbers even meant. Yeah. Yeah, that's always fun. And so uh, tell me about why did you enjoy the world of FP&A more than accounting? Yeah, I mean, for me, accounting was, it was a good start because, you know, it gave you a chance to really dig in because I started from the auditing side. So gave me a chance to really dig in to figure out, okay, how do I actually read a financial statement? How do I understand what was going on? But what I quickly realized is that I was interested in like, okay, all right, how do I take this knowledge and then go do something about it? But mm -hmm. when you're in accounting, that's not your job. <laughs> your job <laughs> is... <laughs> so FP&A was that, that area where it allowed me to still, you know, do what I was really good at with the numbers, but then I could work with the operations team or the sales team to start coming up with strategies and saying like, hey, well, if we did this, this is how the results would look. And I could kind of drive the strategy a little bit that way, because in accounting, you just didn't do that. I mean, you waited for things to happen and then you did the accounting or you audited and that was kind of the extent of it. Yeah, absolutely. Accounting being the very backwards looking version of what, what has happened and FP&A, like what could happen and what do we want to happen being the, the yeah. forward looking version. And I certainly believe in the more forward looking version being more fun, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not, not trying to take anything away from the accountants. That's a really important job in making sure everything's done appropriately. But um, so speaking about, you know, your time, uh, obviously at Fortune 500 organizations and then at much smaller kind of uh, startup organizations, talk to me about the difference in structure you saw with inside A, the FP&A teams, but the difference between the, um, the understanding and the in intellectual grasp of finance from the, the business counterparts. Yeah, I would definitely say, I mean, from a, a structure standpoint, I mean, of course, at your bigger companies, I mean, you had, you know, your FP&A team was a completely separate finance function to where, 
you know, you had a full team of FPNA people that that's all they did. And, you know, and it helped out a lot because they had the time to dig into more, more analysis. They can come up with run more scenarios Mm -hmm. and they would kind of communicate with the accounting team as well as you had some people that were on like the operational finance team. So you had these different layers of finance that could really help and spend more time digging into the details where then you go to a startup to where stuff's like you completely condense all that down to maybe like a couple people. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like now it's like you have like for me, it's like I was the FPNA team along with being the FPNA director as well as being the operational finance person. And then we had an accounting team which they did a lot of the, you know, the, the, the backwards looking accounting, but it's like all of the forward looking stuff was handled by me. So it's just like, you didn't have as many people. I mean, now, unfortunately, like I said, I came from, you know, working in the environment where you had all those different layers. And I was fortunate enough to be strategic to have worked through each of those layers. So I knew what each layer, what they brought to the table. So when I went to a startup, I was able to play all the roles that I needed to play to still help the business move forward. But when you're in a smaller company, like I say, I mean, you literally have to wear a ton of hats and you got to know how to move between them. And then I think also on the operational side, I mean, at a GE, I mean, they did a really good job of of, of giving some of their non-finance team members training to help them understand the basics. Whereas when you go to a startup, everybody's running full speed at doing their thing that they mm-hmm. have very little time to learn or go home and read or go take a week off to go to a class to learn finance. So it's like you have to be the doer and the teacher at the same time when you're working in a small organization. And, and often the teaching is through doing, right? It's through that kind of sitting down and saying, all right, well, let's just work on this model together and I'm going to have to educate you as we go is, is the tough part too. Absolutely, absolutely. And so um, when you talked about some of the layers that you saw at the, at the big companies and um, <clears throat> thinking about, you said that you got the opportunity to work through those layers. Was that an intentional uh, decision from yourself or is that just kind of how your career progressed through larger organizations? Yeah, I mean, some of it was a mix of how it kind of progressed um, just through a larger organization. Now, some of it was, I did want to get out of technical accounting. So that move for me was strategic. It's just Mm -hmm. at the time, I didn't know how many layers existed. I knew that I wanted to get out of accounting to do a little bit more operational. And so I was strategic about making that first step. But I think once I made that first step and it it must have been like uh, impressive to, you know, the leaders that were making those decisions about it, that whether they said, oh, well, if he's willing to make that step, let me introduce him to these other things. So I went through a finance leadership program where, you know, I started doing uh, a finance analysis in R&D. So working with the engineering team and and doing Mm -hmm. a lot of the what if scenario analysis of, okay, what if we redesign this or what if we came up with this new feature? So a lot on and working with the marketing team of, hey, well, what could we sell this for if we came up with this? And running a ton of what if scenarios, cash flow models, NPVs, and all of those great things. And then 
you know, the next layer was I moved into investor relations where I was working with the CEO and his staff of a Fortune 500 company and also being kind of like that link between the CEO staff and the Wall Street analysts. Um, and for me, it was, it was a bit of a shock factor to be on the phone, having <laughs> to re-explain something to a Wall Street analyst, like this could show up in the Wall Street Journal. So I need, I need to make sure that I have what I'm saying right, because if I get quoted and it's wrong, that could be very bad. <laughs> Yeah, you really have a meaningful impact on, on the stock price. And uh, I guess you have to have those numbers memorized all the time, right? Absolutely. I, I think, yeah, there, there, I would say that's where I would say my accounting knowledge really helped out a lot because at the time when we were like, you know, some of the analysts, which I didn't realize, but some of the analysts didn't have a technical accounting background. So they would have some questions about, so why is this this way? Or what do you mean by kind of like with the revenue recognition accounting to where I'm like, oh, I understand that better than you guys. So I can break it down. Yeah. Um, so I would break that stuff down. And even for like the, the CEO staff, like some of his, like his COO to where having to break down, hey, here's what this accounting standard means for us operationally. Here's how I would recommend you explain it the next time you get on a call or the next time you have to get on a stage. It's like just being able to see finance at that greater level. And it, like I said, it forced me to have to see finance from the eyes of a non-finance person as opposed to my typical background. Yeah. And, and I imagine going from that type of environment then into a startup that gave you a huge um probably advantage versus some folks that may not have seen the depth and breadth of FP&A. Uh, maybe they've only ever worked in startups, but um, going from that enterprise focus, doing a variety of roles, then coming into a startup, you could use that experience in, in my mind, I, I would imagine, you could use that experience to then really just drop knowledge bombs across the organization <laughs> as, as you need to in order to kind of spur um, spur the momentum that a startup's really looking for. Yeah, it, it definitely did. I mean, it gave me a, a ton of perspective of, and even as the CEO and the CFO of the startup that I was at that we would talk about. And one of the things he said is, you know, he was a little hesitant. They were a little hesitant to pull the trigger because they were like, okay, all right, you're coming from a big company. Typically, you find a lot of people who come from big companies they don't really do as well in a startup because they're just not used to having to wear so many hats. Yeah. Um, but they were like, one of the big things that really, that they really liked was like, you've seen where we're trying to go. So it's like, you can point out things to where like, and, and, and fortunate for me is like, when I was at General Electric, I also did a couple of finance leader roles in some of their smaller business units, like businesses, a business that GE had acquired. So I kind of got kind of that ground floor level. All right, how do we take this small business that they just bought to really get it up to the standard that the rest of the organization kind of operates? So being able to see, like sit in meetings where they would talk about something like when the sales team would talk about, hey, this is where we want it, what we want to do it, or these are the contracts, is being able to say, okay, all right, two years from now, will taking that approach be a good approach? Because if we sign that deal now, two years from now, will that be the right type of contract for where the company's going? And me being able to think through that and say, hey, maybe we should tweak this or tweak this. 
And then working with the legal team, it's like, hey, that language, we probably should keep that in mind. And just being able to bring that to the table was because I had the bigger enterprise level um, experience. Sure, absolutely. And, and during your time at your startup, did, did you happen to fundraise at all? So did your investor relations uh, world come back straight at you? <laughs> you know, it did. I mean, where when I first came in, they had just bought another company for around 20 something million. So it was really all right. We just bought this new company. So I used that experience of like, hey, now we got to get their processes up to speed with what we're doing and figure out what we're doing as a whole. Then we bought another company and then we went through raising about 65 plus million in private equity funding. So then the investor relations hat came back on and it's like, okay, all right, now that we've raised it, what type of reporting are we gonna create? Because they wanna see regular updates on where we're going. <laughs> so that investor relations hat definitely came back on. Awesome. Awesome. So that, I'm sure that was fun. So talk to me about um, maybe specifically at the startup world, uh, probably a little bit more relatable for most of the, most of our audience. I, it's safe to say not everyone's here has been run the gamut of GE and, uh, and some of those companies. But talk about that environment of trying to change or influence um, the business leadership into, I know you talk about it on your podcast, the idea of the language of money, right? Um, do you want to talk about how you can, can leverage your accounting, your finance skills to influence um, business leaders who may not necessarily understand something like ASC 606 or IRFS and things like that and, and, and talking to them? How, how did you manage to A, learn that and B, actually change the score? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it came from spending time understanding their world. Because I mean, in a small organization, everybody's wearing so many different hats to where, in theory, it's like they don't really have as much free time to sit down and listen to you explain something that they don't understand. It's just like they're they're running full speed in their world. Like, you know, the marketing director, she's she was running full speed in her world. So what I had to do is create, you know, space in my schedule to sit in with some of her meetings, to hear how she was thinking about, you know, the marketing for the organization, to hear the type of discussion she was having with her team. And then go back and look at the numbers and say, okay, how do I translate what I know into something that makes sense for her? And it ended up having to do the same thing with the sales team and, and just attending some of their meetings. And a lot of it came down to talking to the sales manager and told him, hey, I wanted to attend the meeting. Now, first, you know, it was strange because before me, no one had really ever brought that up to them. It was like, well, why do you want to do that? Like, are you trying to check up on us and, yeah. you know, having to explain like, I want to understand the world the way you guys see it, because when, you know, the CFO and I are coming in making recommendations, we don't want to give you guys an unrealistic target to hit. It's like, I want to understand the world from your perspective. So then we can start better educating, you know, the rest of the business so that things flow a lot better. So it came from a lot of sitting in attending non-finance meetings to hear how they thought about, you know, their job, how they thought about their team, and then having to go back and really say, okay, all right, how do I translate what I do into something that relates and makes sense to them? And it, it took it took a while to really build those relationships. 
and to really start to mentally make those switches like okay all right how do i turn my sales brain on when i'm looking at finance stuff and I wouldn't say that I was always perfect on it, but it was definitely something that I, I worked at a lot. Yeah, it seems like uh, in some cases there's a, a business that is all speaking, you know, marketing speaking one language, sales is speaking another language, uh, you know, engineering speaking another language, and you have to become the only person that can translate all of those languages into what you call the language of money. <laughs> Absolutely. Because I mean, there were times where I would sit in meetings and because I, I had spent time working with the, you know, the sales team where the engineering team would bring up an idea of what they were trying to do. And I'm like, hold on. I remember the sales team was trying to do that. That's actually going to hurt the sales team. So then I would be able to speak up and then also talk about the financial implication of it to where that really helped the sales team feel like, wow, this guy's really is like on our team. Like he's really trying to understand because what the engineering team was saying was drastically going to impact the sales team. It's just, he didn't know how to translate what the engineering team was saying into his world. But it's like me being kind of like that. I became like the Rosetta stone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we all did those language courses back in the day and now it's much easier. You just get online and uh, Google does it all for us, right? Much easier now. But can you Absolutely. talk about, do you have any specific experiences where um, someone didn't really understand the core concept of, of finance and you're able to educate them and, and therefore make a big impact on, on the team or on the department? Yeah, I think with the sales team where, you know, when the sales team was thinking about it, like in some respects, and, and I've seen this at, even at some of your larger Fortune 500 companies where the sales team, they're compensated, uh, you know, they, they're, you know, they get commissions based on the sales and the deals that they close. And so they're highly incentivized to do that. Now, at times they would be like, okay, all right, this is, this is a price point that I know will help us close the deal. And then I would take a step back and say, well, that price point does not help the business. And the way you're trying to negotiate the terms of this is horrible cash flow implications for the business. So then having to try to explain to them like, hey, the price point that you're trying to go forward with is going to hurt the business. But at the same time, they're thinking, well, if I go any higher, it's going to hurt my commissions. So then it's just like you get into the, you know, the, the very, a, a very like where I had to start. OK, how do we figure out how do we renegotiate this deal and really having to explain and walk them through like, hey, here's the cost structure of that product. And if you agree to these terms in this deal, this is what it's going to cost the business to support that. And after kind of walking them through that, they started understanding like, oh, so whenever I tell them that we'll deliver in 10 days, what that means is engineers have to, we have to start paying outside engineers to work overtime to get this in 10 days, as opposed to like, tell them we'll get it to them in 20 days. Like that 10 days makes a huge difference. And so having to explain that to them to where they can start being able to connect, well, Every time you're talking about giving them an incentive or a, you know, something additional, there's a price tag that comes with that. And we're having to eat that cost. Yes, it helps, it helps you close the big deal, 
but you're adding all these layers of cost on. And as I started walking them through that, and then we got to the point where we kind of just built out what a, a kind of like a self-service, like financial model or pricing model would look like. Yeah. So if this is what you're asking, or this is what you want to offer, put these numbers in the model. The model will tell you whether that's going to be profitable, yes or no. So they can start to see, okay, all right, I can probably adjust here. Or maybe if I push this out, or maybe if I upsell that, maybe if I sell them the base product and then upsell this, maybe this could work. And so I think of that really was an opportunity for me to really get out of my area to really work with them to help them understand something that they didn't to get a better results for the business. Yeah, I, I see that a lot in my revenue operations capacity where a lot of salespeople receive a price book and they don't understand why we've why an organization has come up with the price book the way it has, mm -hmm. what are the levers? And so they don't know how to sell the value in some cases, right? They, they're just saying, oh, well, the customer wants a faster implementation let me, let me, they, they don't understand the gives and the gets, right? So in your example, they're like, well, the customer wants it faster. I'll give it to them in 10 days for the same price. And it's like, well, there's a value in getting it 10 days faster. So how do we sell that value that is, in your example, cost back to the business? And I think that's something that is really important for, for finance leaders to be able to um, not only break down like how we got to this pricing, but the levers that people can pull within that to, to ultimately help the business. And, you know, if you can boil it down into a simple spreadsheet template or a model for someone that is easily plug and play, you can really have a meaningful impact on A, the ASP of your future deals and, and, and even on the winnability of those deals because the salespeople feel empowered to sell things. And when, when salespeople are confident, man, they can, they can do some amazing things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think also to that, I mean, there are some situations where, you know, when the price book was, you know, created, it was assuming that we would have, let's say, like this base piece of hardware. But after spending some time with the sales team, what they were finding is a lot of the, the customers were having specific requests for a different type of hardware. And the price book didn't have it didn't have an upsell ability in it. Like right. the price book didn't have that price separately. So they were, you know, following the price book and they were, you know, selling them this different hardware. But what we didn't realize until, like I said, I started digging in like, hey, we're losing money on this because this alternative hardware that they want costs more. We just never accounted for it in our price book. So we went back and, and came back and said, OK, let's amend the price book and say, hey, if they want this hardware, is this price. If they want this hardware, hey, this is this price. And when we started doing that, what we saw is like, you know, the profitability started going up because we actually started pricing or selling the value and explaining like, hey, in our base product, you're getting this product. But if you want the upgraded version, because you're going to get this additional incremental value is this price. And customers were happy to pay that. I mean, the sales team, they were happy because the, you know, the total sales price went up. So their commissions went up yeah. and the business was happy because their profits went up. So, I mean, it was one of those things that, like I said, just diving into their world and translating it back to numbers to say, okay, all right, here's something we can do to help everybody in the scenario a lot better. 
Yeah, and I think coming from what you just talked about there was the the biggest thing that I think, well, I know would have made a difference is gaining that trust first uh, where you sat in on a lot of those sales and marketing meetings and engineering meetings to gain the trust of the organization. Then you've subsequently learned that there's this lever in the pricing model, which it didn't exist, which is new lever, which is a certain hardware type. And, uh, and that's associated with value based, based on the prospect and the company. And you're able to introduce a new lever to your pricing model and ultimately create more value for everyone, right? The customer's happier because they're getting the hardware that they want. The, uh, the organization is happier because they're, you know, everything's going well. But if you had have just seen that from outside, you know, finance looking in, you would have probably just said, we just need to lift everything up, right? We need to lift all prices rather than understanding that there was a specific hardware lever there that was easy to fix for everyone. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that, um, you know, we, we talked about is, let's face it, most business people only want to talk to finance when business people want something like headcount, <laughs> more budget, uh, or, you know, we need more budget in the annual plan, um, or there's something that, you know, is, is a concern or a caution and generally it's more money, right? Um, how do we get that conversation moving to from that, you know, request or trigger-based conversation to the experience that you had at, at that organization where it seemed like you you were a true business partner to the team. You're sitting in on their meetings. You're helping guide and advise them uh, throughout the course of their, their general um, day-to-day business. How did you, how, how should people think about becoming that business partner? Yeah, I think from the, the finance standpoint, I think part of it's, you know, it's an, it's an ego thing that you have to get get over because I remember having a conversation at uh, with one of my mentors and I worked at one of the Fortune 500 companies and, you know, and I was explaining like how, you know, I really want to get, I really want to be a, a business leader. And I mean, this was when I was really, really young and very naive about things. And I was like, I want to be a business leader. And he said, Terrell, I'm, I'm going to be completely honest with you. He was like, you know, if you're in accounting and finance, the highest level you will reach is the number two spot. You will, it is the CEO's job to make, you know, those final calls. Now your job is to help enable him to make better calls. You probably won't, if you stay in accounting and finance, you won't be the decision maker at the very top. And he was like, and you got to actually understand that and realize that. And for me, it was, it was one of those wake up calls that I realized like, you know, that is right. My job is to enable good decision making. And I think after that conversation and I, and I tell other, you know, accounting and finance professionals, it's like your job is to figure out opportunities that you find in the data to help those that are on the front lines executing, help them move forward and move closer to the goals and the targets that they're after. And so I think it definitely takes time of, like I said, first understanding what goal does your, you know, your, your, your revenue operations leader have? Like, what's the most important things to them? Like, what are their targets? I mean, even with the engineering team, like what's important to them? And once you start to understand what's important to them, then as you look at the numbers, you will inevitably find opportunities. And it's just like bringing those ideas back to them. 
even if they aren't ideas that the revenue leader or the sales leader or the engineering leader uses, the fact that they know that, hey, you know what, Terrell's over there looking for opportunities to help me get where I'm going, it starts to build that level of trust to where then they may start to bring you in the conversations on the front end of like, hey, this is what we're thinking about doing. Will this help us get us to our goal faster? And I think, like I said, once you start to build that trust and they start to see, you know, see you as a as an ally towards their goal, I think, you know, it makes it a lot easier because, I mean, to be completely honest, most people, when I first started coming to those meetings, they were like, oh, finance is here. There's certain things we can't say. <laughs> that's just how they, they, that's how they see finance and accounting as, hey, finance and accounting professionals are the police. So they're here for compliance reasons. They're not really here to help us fix things or they're not really here to help us move forward. But I think, you know, on the finance professional side is like, you got to start breaking that wall down by, you know, first understand what are their priorities and then start bringing them back ideas. Like, Hey, I was looking at these numbers, even if it's something as simple as, Hey, I created this new report that helps you see how close you guys are moving to your goal. Just doing something that simple can start to let them know that, Hey, this person is on our side. Yeah. And starting, I think what the, the key thing that I heard uh, through that, that was start with them and their goals, uh, not with your version of the world, right? Which is a PL or a budget or a forecast, right? But if you start with the what's important to you, what's that? And then you can go away and tra- again, back to translation, translate that into a finance view of the world and say, well, take what's important to you. Now, here's something that I think could help. Like, to your point, wow, he's really in our corner here. He's like, and especially if you did it in a way which is like, well, this is outside of the scope of our normal budget or our normal PL or our normal forecast. And because as a finance professional, you understand the unit economics of everything. So you're then able to say, well, actually, it would make a lot of fiscal sense if we invested in this thing because we could get X return. And a lot of business people, here's a shocking fact, also don't think that you can go outside of budget, right? They're they're like, oh, I just got given this envelope and that's all I get for the year. And so uh, I would advise other finance folks to realize that you can go outside of a budget. We all know that. But the business people just think that's their envelope. They've got to stay within it or come under it. And, and they don't see FP&A or, or accounting professionals as the way of saying, well, actually, they'll help me justify this and get more investment or get ways outside of the normal bounds that I have been constrained by in the annual plan. No, I think that's completely true. I mean, and, and that doing that really also helped me, you know, bridge a huge gap with one of the sales leaders that I worked with because... I, you know, when I took the time to understand the sales leader knew that he needed to, to hit a certain sales number, um, he needed to hit a, a certain ARR number. And so one of the things that I did is I went, okay, all right, if I take your ARR number and we translate that into, we say, okay, the average customer we bring on board does about this much ARR. So you need to bring on, you know, 12 new customers um, to be able to hit your number. And then I just kind of started working it backwards. Like for you to bring on 12 new customers, 
how many people do you need to talk to? Like, what do your conversion rates look like? And then we got that number and we figured, okay, all right, if you needed to talk to, you know, 24 people to close 12 deals, and then I went and talked to marketing and said, okay, all right, how many leads are you targeted to bring in? And then the marketing team was only targeting to bring in 15 new leads. I'm like, well, you definitely aren't going to hit your number. <laughs> and it came down to because the marketing team didn't have enough budget to go after, you know, 25 to 26 leads. And I'm just like, all right, maybe we need to like reconfigure the budget. And, and then so I'm like, maybe the marketing team needs more budget so they can feed more leads so that you can get those 24 people you need to talk to to close your 12 deals. And it's like, until I sat down to go through that, to connect the dots, you know, the marketing team and the sales team, you know, for some reason, they hadn't been talking enough to realize like, you guys have a, the sales leader had an unrealistic goal because the marketing team wasn't going to get them enough leads. But when they started realizing and, and, you know, and I went with them to, you know, the leadership team and explained like, hey, this is why we need to add more money here. And the leadership team went out and they figured out how to allocate more funding to the marketing team to feed that pipeline. And from that experience, both the sales team as well as the marketing team were like, okay, Terrell's on our side. Like we can trust him and, and we can trust that, hey, he's going to actually, you know, make decisions or make calls or go to bat for us to make sure we're doing what's right for the overall company and for the goals that we have to achieve. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that's a funny story. That's clearly a bit of a mishap in the whole annual planning process in terms of the goal setting and budget setting. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm going to assume that that was happened prior to your arrival. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, the interesting thing there is they're so busy swimming in their own lanes with their own goals, right? Like, you know, someone's been asked to do, uh, I, use a swim, I said swimming, so let's keep on the swimming analogy. Someone's been asked to do, you know, breaststroke to get down to the other end of the, the pool and someone else is doing freestyle. And it's like, hang on, they're both still swimming, different strokes to get there and they're aligned but it's not going to happen like that that race is a very different race um and it takes you to come along to to observe from above to say oh they're doing two completely different sports even though it's in a pool and they're in the same time and doing everything it's it's a no contest um it, it's it's really interesting how often that actually happens in organizations as everyone is just super busy doing their own thing Absolutely. I mean, I, I definitely think it, it, it happens more often than it should, because I mean, things like that happen at the startup level. Even when I think back to, you know, times of working in Fortune 500 companies, I saw that happen several times at Fortune 500 companies. So where it's just like, you know, having to get in, get in there and work through the, the leads or just work through the numbers. And even when I, I look at you know, on, uh, like I said, companies that were in like the manufacturing space where the sales team has sold, you know, X number of units. But when I look at the, you know, the, the supply chain, they only have enough inventory to do half of that. I'm like, well, you're not going to be able to meet, you know, 100% delivery on that because, and it's like going back, like, hey, we either need to reconfigure the budget or we got to go find the additional money to close the gap so that the organization as a whole can hit their target. 
and I think, like I said, a lot of it just became is a lot of people are only swimming in their lane and there aren't enough people that can see like, hey, you know what? Well, lane one is doing a completely different stroke than lane two. Maybe we should probably tell them both, hey, both of you guys need to do the same stroke. And then, like you said, you're, you're actually in the same competition. Yeah. And, and the important part is like, look, there's obviously things out there that can help connect those dots for organizations. There's software integrations, there's all sorts of, uh, you know, goal setting and alignment structures and, and uh, really helping businesses achieve that holistic vision where you know that we've only got X number of widgets to sell. So let's not sell, uh, set a comp plan up that incentivizes our reps to oversell, you know, Y number of widgets. Um, but until you can get to that space in, in your um, organize, your back office transformation where you can, uh, you know, buy those tools or, or build those integrations and have all that data flowing seamlessly to be super connected and super collaborative, FPNA needs to be that translation service and that kind of listening and advising service. Is there, is there any experiences, Terrell, where you can draw on where you've seen that just humming, right? No mistakes. Everyone's just kind of flowing through or, or have you just, it's, it's so to me, it seems so normal. No matter how high performing the organization, there's always going to be a little error here or there because they're either running so fast or they're, you know, creating so much change that you can never keep up. Yeah, there was one uh one smaller business unit within GE where I was a finance leader and you know where things were humming very, very well. And we called it, it's like, we use this, this method called the, the Lego method, where we literally like on the shop floor to where every stage of the process, we literally had Legos and the different colors represented something different to where every morning what we go through is you stack the Legos and say, okay, all right, how many deals were in this phase of the process? And we would stack the number of Legos. So like at any given day, the team could go out there and look at the board and see, well, where are most of the Legos being bottlenecked or where are most of the Legos sitting? Or it's like, hey, the Legos I'm responsible for, are they moving smoothly through the process? And I think being able to like, you know, bring it back to like a childhood toy for so many people (laughs) (laughs) to see physical Legos to where it's just like, it made it so simple for people to understand like, oh, okay, when I do this, it's messing up that person down there. But being able to visualize it that way, I think that was probably one of the experiences where I would say things were humming, you know, that they were just flowing well. And I think it really came back to like, how do we break this down and have some something that does a very good visualization of what we individually know in our head, but how do we put it down so that everybody can see a visual representation of the information we have in our head so everybody can follow the story that's going? I'm not sure how our listeners can do the Lego method in the current <laughs> Zoom environment, but uh, what I like to me, that's so interesting. It's such a tactile visual um you know you would feel really connected to that process because you're literally connecting things as you're going that's that's really cool i've never heard of anything like that but uh 
Yeah, I'm sure Lego are online right now as well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and like I said, it, it, seemed, it was something that was, it caught people's attention because they're like, because everybody was like, oh, we need to go to Legoland. And, and, and <laughs> people would come visit. They'd be like, well, what is that? Well, let me show you. And they would be like, you guys literally have like Legos at work. And it's like, yeah. And then when we explain it to them, like in a matter of moments, I think when you when you have a very good visualization tool, and in our case, it was physical Legos. But when you have a very good visualization tool, it's like people, the learning curve that people need to understand what's going on dramatically goes down. And so for me, it's one of those things that I carry through of like, okay, all right, how do we get some type of visualization in whether it's using charts or, I mean, whether it's using physical objects if we can, but it's just like, how do we break away from just throwing numbers on a board to how do we get some visual to where when people look at it, they can quickly get an idea of what's going on and they kind of know where they play into the whole process. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think it's um, that whole, you know, even engineers do this sometimes where they're all in a room together. They, they, they ditch the whole systemized process and they go back to the sticky notes on the, on the, on the whiteboard or on the cushion pin board and they just move the sticky notes on as to how things are going. And just that tactile, you know, really connected nature of, oh, I can see my little object is, is really, really powerful for, for folks. In terms of um, in terms of kind of how you see the future of finance, as uh, you know, you talk on your uh, your podcast, Business Talk Library. You talk to a lot of small business leaders and give advice to to more small business leaders. What do you see for the organizations that are you know kind of growing, and, and where do you think they should be looking to make their investments, whether it be more FBNA heads to go and create all those layers, or is it more? Um, you know, actually, where do you see uh, finance going for kind of small, fast-growing organizations? Yeah, for small, fast-growing organizations, I definitely think their their investment needs to definitely be in the tools that they have, um, mm-hmm. because in a in a smaller, fast-growing organization you may not have the luxury of having the sales leader sit and wait for, you know, the finance person, because you may only be like one or, or maybe five finance people. They may not have the luxury of waiting for you to come around to them again, to where you need to have some type of tool that allows you to communicate, you know, the relevant information to them in almost a kind of a, a real time basis. You know, there, there has to be some way, and especially in this remote world that we're in, um, you, they may not be able to wait for you to hop on a Zoom before they close that next deal. So you need to have some type of, of tool that allows you to share information, share the insights that you're learning from other parts of the business. Because, you know, just to be completely honest, when an organization is thinking about growing, the finance team is usually not the one that gets, you know, the first pick of, hey, we're going to add more heads. I mean, that's yeah. just usually not what happens. <laughs> yeah, so, it's, it's, it's normally when things get to breaking point and that poor, you know, that single FP&A who's also <laughs> kind of been doing the accounting or, you know, we've outsourced accounting to someone else and someone's at breaking point, right? Yes. 
and so I think the way that the way that finance professionals can definitely get ahead of that, I think, is is starting to you know to have tools that allow them to systemize some of the repeat things, so they spend less time doing you know the transactional backward looking things. It's just like how do you get tools that can automate some of that, so you spend more time really looking at hey the what if scenarios and just kind of like, hey, before a decision is made, you being able to get somewhat of a glimpse, whether it's, you know, building a basic tool or basic framework that allows you to put in a few variables. And then you can start to get an idea like, hey, what might this look like if we change these variables? Because I think that's what the rest of the business needs from the finance team, because like I said, a, a lot of the accounting background, accounting functions, they are starting to be able to handle by technology. And as that happens, that just means that the accounting professionals need to move closer to the front line of decision making while technology is filling the gap of the backroom stuff. And if finance professionals aren't ready to move closer to the front line, what's going to happen is is the technology will overlap them and all the non-finance people will start to ask, well, if you're doing the same thing the technology is doing, why should I come to you? And you start to lower that, that credibility and it damages the relationship of the value that can be added there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that we can automate uh, because it's routine and it's, it's really low cognition work, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, you know, certain something like Expensify, right? For a person, yeah. a human being is like, oh, well, I don't need to manually enter all the details of my expense report because it's going to scan and it's routine and it's automatable. And so that's also how you should be thinking in, 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 you know, to, to those listening. Think about all the, the manual, repetitive, low value, but um, uh, low cognition things. Automate that as much as possible so that you can spend your time on the non-routine, high value, high cognition work and try and figure out the boxes in between. Well, can I outsource that? Can I, can I systemize some of that? Can I offload that to the business leader? And figure it out that way, because then you're creating a structure whereby you're trying to remove all the manual work over time. And, and you can't do it all at once either. This, yeah. this isn't easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely not an easy task by any means. And, and so... I definitely tell people to, st to start thinking about like, you know, from a finance standpoint, think about the system of how you're doing your job. Like, you know, thinking about the system of, you know, the people on your team, because you even run into it when it's time, you know, when, when as a finance person, when you do get the budget to start to hire people, just asking yourself, it was like, you know, are you hiring someone to do a task or are you hiring a player to be a part of the team? Because, what you do as a team will evolve. But if you only hire them to do this one task, well, what happens when you figure out a system, now you either have to reteach them a new skill or you gotta go find somebody else or you have to fill in the gap of what they don't have until they get up to speed. So I always tell people, it's like, think about the system of what you're doing. Um, what can you automate? And then like I said, that the low cognition work is just like, okay, how do we get that to a point where we can automate it? And sometimes automating that also means talking to the non-finance team members. Maybe they need to make some tweaks in their processes 
that allows you to automate this step. But I think, you know, then again, it's, you know, being a salesperson or being a, you know, a person who can communicate the value and say, hey, if you guys do it this way, it allows us to automate this function so I can spend more time helping you sell more deals or helping you get better pricing or helping you do more analysis. And when I started doing that, like, you know, the non-finance teams were always willing to say, yeah, we can tweak that. If that means we'll get more of your time to help us do this stuff on the front end, yeah, we, we'll tweak what we're doing so that flows automatically. And, and I think finance people have to start thinking about the system of what they do and less about the task that they're doing because as we move into the new world of, of business and things get faster and different decisions have to be made, more rapidly, more real time, the non-finance team, they're going to need their finance, the wisdom that's in their finance person's head. But if that finance person is so busy doing, you know, low cognition, you know, repetitive work, they won't be there to actually help provide the insight and be the business partner that they should be. Well, Terrell, I couldn't agree more with everything you just said there. That That's, you know, exactly what I think businesses need from their FPNA leaders is, is they need that kind of that space for them to go off and, and think. I know you talked about it earlier when you talked about what did you see the difference from the enterprise organizations was. It was that they had more time to be able to do those specifics and they were able to run more scenarios, do more analyses, and therefore be more confident about the output. And that's what uh, all business leaders are looking for but you can't do any of that if you've only got time to run one scenario and, and check that for errors before running two or three or four or even 20 different scenarios. And, uh, and, and the businesses owe it to themselves to unlock that strategic value that sits inside of, of, of finance people as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think it, it brings so much more peace to everybody involved in the process when when, you know, when, when the non-finance team members that are responsible for making a decision can make a decision more confidently because they were able to look at it from different scenarios, like, hey, we ran five scenarios on this and out of the five we ran, this is the best outcome, as opposed to, well, I only had time to run one scenario. I hope this is right. I mean, it's just like being able to run more makes them feel more confident as they move forward in those decisions. Hundred percent. Well, Terrell, this has been an awesome uh, episode. I've loved having you on. I know our listeners will have done so as well. Uh, do you want to talk to the listeners about where they can hear more from me? Yeah, definitely. So the, the Business Talk Library is is the kind of the content company that uh, that my wife and I create a lot of content for. I mean, she's uh, an executive with a Fortune five hundred company in finance and accounting as well. And so we collaborate on a lot of different things that we're either we've either done for other companies or we're currently doing or things that we're working through. And we share a lot of that insight um, just to really help small business owners, medium sized businesses really break things down and make it simpler so they can hear it and be like, OK, all right, that makes sense. I can go do something about that. And they can find that on businesstalklibrary.com. Awesome. Terrell, well, thank you so much for being on Being Planful and uh, hope to chat to you soon. Thank you for having me. 
Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for stopping by.